privilege today to be able to give to you guys the wonderful word of God. So let us go ahead and begin with prayer books. Blessed Lord, we're grateful for the fact that you speak to us, Lord. That you've given yourself a people, Lord, that you've called us. And that we want to be a people that are going to be diligent to obey you, Father. Who want to do your will. Who want to be as Jesus Christ. Who we should be imitating, Lord. We ask you today, Lord, as we are going to have a sober message on judgment, Lord. And on the justice of God. As we are going to have a lesson, Lord, on hell. I pray, Lord, that you would be able to indeed let our minds be mindful of the things that we should be looking for. For the fact that we need to know who you are, my Lord. And we want to know you correctly. So please, let your spirit work in us today. Let all distractions be set aside. That we may properly deliver your word. And be able to glorify you as you ought to be glorified. For we ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As I mentioned, brothers, today I'm going to do a study actually on hell. And the name of the uh, sermon is called Hell and the Justice of God. Because to properly understand the doctrine of hell, we have to understand why there is hell and why God is going to judge everyone ultimately. If you could please turn to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 8. That's going to be our our topical, you could say, uh, verses for what we're going to be uh, going through. And that's Revelation chapter 21, 5 through 8. Reading as follows. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give them from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Amen. So this day and age, this is a topic that is not discussed too much. Many of us have an understanding of what hell is, either through discussion with brothers, sometimes in certain Bible studies, but a lot of it is also a lot of what the media or what we see in Hollywood. And so we have an understanding that there is a place of torment in which all that are sinners and evil and unrepentant will go to. And this is a reality, brothers, that we have to remember that even though it is discussed in the world, it is not always properly understood. And so what we want to know is, what is hell? And hell is the ultimate place in which God will send those that will be eternally punished. That concept in itself is a concept that is very, very difficult for some people to understand because some people don't understand how is it that we, as human beings, living a life that is finite, right? Not eternal in this world. 
have to suffer a, a, a suffering that will be uh, eternal. But the one thing that I remind you, brothers, is that God's work is an eternal work. And even though we're living in this earth, which will eventually end and will be burned up in its due time, God's purpose for us, having created us, was to be an eternal people. When he made Adam and Eve, it was not his intention, obviously through his prescribed will, that they uh, suffer, that they be cursed, but that they would actually be living in paradise. And that is actually what we are looking for. We who are hopeful, we who are looking to Christ, that is what we are looking for. And so the one thing that we want to look at is knowing that Adam and Eve failed to meet the test for God given them, for God had given them, you know, his law by stating to them that they could eat and partake of anything in the garden except for eating of the one tree, which was the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But yet, what, what do we see? We see that Satan crept in, tempted, tempted them, right? Starting with Eve. And in essence, they broke. They broke the law of God. And God had told them, God had told them that if you do this, you will die. So one of the things that we have to be cognizant about, brothers, is that just the way Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve excuse me, were given a law, which in Reformed theology we actually call the covenant of works, we all fall under. God is still expecting us to keep his law. And we have the scriptures, the scriptures themselves, to give us the revelation of what God desires, of what God is telling us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. In that same way, you can look at the Mosaic uh, Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is, in essence, another picture of the garden. Because what do we have? We have God stating, if you do this, you're going to be greatly blessed. And not only blessed, like nicely blessed, but blessed beyond comprehension. But in the same way, brothers, God stated that he would curse. He would curse them, that they would have great cursing, even to the point of death. And that is what we see in hell. The life that we're living now has consequences. And we have to be cognizant of how we are living, brothers, because that is what we must be doing. We must be doing the law of God. When, when God gave revelation to Jeremiah in uh, chapter 31, where we have the introduction of the new covenant, what do we have? We have God stating what he would accomplish in the new covenant. Having given the old, in the new it says that he would actually put his law in our minds and in our hearts and that we would do it. So if you're called, if you have been called by God, brothers, this is an important thing that you have to remember. If you want to know whether you are in Christ or not, it has to do with how do you view the law? Do you view the law as a burden? Are you fearful of the law? If you see the law as a burden and you're fearful of the law, then I would say you have to question where you're at with the Lord. Because to love the Lord is to fear Him in awe, not to fear Him because He's going to judge you. If we are in Christ, there are many scriptures that give us the comfort and the hope that we will be uh, with Him. Particularly as, as we uh, who follow Reformed theology believe in the doctrine of perseverance. God will give you the perseverance to, to follow through. But it's very important 
that we are cognizant of the fact that we have to be, as Paul uh, states in Corinthians, that we be testing ourselves. Because the one thing that we want to be sure is, how do we know if we're authentically there? We know that also because of the parable of the sower, where the different seed fell in different ground, that the seed is actually a form of faith. And many times I think I've noticed that in Christianity we talk a lot about faith in a very in a very distinctive fashion, in a dichotomy. We say, well, this, this person doesn't really have faith, this person has faith, and this other person doesn't have faith. Actually, I, I actually think that the parable of the sower shows us that there are many people who do have faith. But what the book of James teaches us is that it's a particular faith that gets you through it's, it's the faith that works. It's the, it's the faith that brings the fruit of God that works. So it's not enough, brothers, that we confess, but that we know that we are loving God, that we are seeking His law, and that we are seeking to bring this goodness to the earth. Because when we pray the Lord's Prayer, what are we praying, brothers? Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That is the work of Christ. The reason why Jesus is sitting right now at the right hand of the Father is because He's bringing all things into Himself, putting all things under His feet. And this will be culminated in the last judgment, of which will be the result of receiving either heaven or, receive, or receiving hell. So with that in mind, I want to look at the first question that I have, which is, what does God's Word tell us will happen in the end? Let us turn to Matthew chapter 25, and I want us to look at verses 31 through 46. Because here we have a great picture of what is going to happen when Christ comes with his angels to give his judgment. So as I repeat it, that's Matthew 25, reading verses 31 through 46. Reading as follows. When the Son of Man comes in his glory... All the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, ye who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did you, excuse me, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will also say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. 
sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me? Then they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then he will answer them, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, this is a very interesting passage because if you notice, here we have both the righteous and the unrighteous asking the same question. And it's an interesting thing because what are they addressing? We're addressing specifically serving the Lord. But notice what it actually says. It says that what we do with the people of God, what we do with, uh, with, with our fellow human beings too, has a lot to do with what we are doing unto God. So it's very, very important that we engage in acts of charity, not only within our churches, but even with the world, because this is actually an extension of the work of God. And we see that if we are faithful to follow in what the Lord has given us, he will reward us for those. And that's even us being sinners, not being perfect. But because we live in the Spirit of Christ, in the Holy Spirit, it is because of that that those works are being taken in because of the gracious work of the cross. But for those people that don't show any charity, that don't love their brother, don't show any kindness even to their fellow man, are they not in essence, deserving of punishment. When you ask people if they believe in goodness or if they have a concept of what is good, everybody asks. Can anyone name one person who says, "Yes, I'm evil. I'm deserving of you know going to prison or you know going to hell"? No, nobody does, because every man, as the Book of Proverbs says, acts according to what he thinks is good. But as we know, the Word of God teaches us that. That it isn't sober. There's a standard that God has. It's not based on your standard. It's not based on what your heart is telling you. It's based on what God has said. So we have to be very cognizant of paying attention to that. The second question is why does excuse me? Why does yeah, why does one end up in hell? Let us turn to the book of Ezekiel and look at chapter 18, verse 20. Ezekiel 18, 20. Reading as follows. The person who sins is the one who will die. A son won't suffer wickedness he has committed and does what is... Oh, excuse me. Punishment for the father's iniquity. And a father won't suffer punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous person will be on him, and the wickedness of the wicked person will be on him. So this is an important thing, brothers, that God very specifically is holding us accountable for the sin that we are doing. Let us now turn to Romans chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 23. Romans 6, verses 20 through 23. Reading as follows. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. 
So what fruit was produced from the things that you are now ashamed of? The outcome of those things is death. But now since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So once again, brothers, what is the wages of sin? Death. And so this is the final outcome that will come. Now, one of the things that's very important to understand is that when we think of death in this world, how do we define death? Basically, ceasing to be anymore, right? Ceasing to exist. Your body's no longer breathing, you know? It's no longer uh, full of life. It's just there, and it rots away. And that seems to be the end of man. As a matter of fact, the book of Ecclesiastes, that's the way it describes it, because it's describing, basically, Solomon's describing the world as we see it here. But for God, it's actually a different reality. Because, as I said before, God's intention for man is to be an eternal creature. If you are one who practices righteousness, who is in Christ, what are you, as the text has told us? You are a slave to the Lord. You are a servant of the Lord. So you should be bearing the fruit of God, Amen. doing the work of God. If you're not doing the work, the work of God, brothers, that's a really bad sign. That's a sign to tell you that what you have is to expect death. But death, as we understand it in the book of Revelation, and which, which we will uh, actually look at uh, another passage, but as we looked at it originally in Revelation 21, when it spoke of that the lake of fire that burns is the second death, is because death is really separation from God. At this moment, we make distinctions between those that are the people of God and the people that are not of God. But is not God's goodness still being given even on the unbelieving and the sinful? Do they not live? Are they not able to work? Are they not given health? Do they not have children? Do they not enjoy the fruit of their labor? These are all things that are actually blessings from God. That is what we call common grace, what is given to all men. And we see that man today is receiving that. And that in itself is one of the reasons why man will be greatly condemned. Because while God has been showing him good, what does he do? He goes and he does evil. But looking at the same text that we just looked at, Romans 6, what is the reason for this place? Why is it that man continues in his evil? I was talking with uh, Brother Johnny earlier, and we were discussing how he was uh, speaking with uh, a family member and how the family member was asking him, you know, why is it that people can't see these truths? Why is it that they don't believe? But it's because, brothers, we are a slave to sin. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve. That is the uh, original sin. We've been given over to a cursing us. And our inclination is to do not what is of God. We actually challenge God. When we don't do what God asks, we're actually challenging God. One of the opportunities uh, that I had to do when actually I was uh, involved in the homeless ministry is uh, we were giving out Bibles, and I was trying to think, what would be a good way to communicate to someone when I give them the Bible how they should read the Word of God? And one of the things that I realized is that the first thing that we do is turn to the Gospels, right? 
Why? Because it gives us the accounts of Jesus. It tells us who Jesus is and what he did. And then I explained, you know, to read the uh, book of Romans because the book of Romans basically tells us what is the significance of what we learn in the Gospels and the ultimate end of, of judgment as we read in, in Romans 6. But we know that the Lord sanctifies those who are his people. But for those of that are actually wicked, he actually allows them to continue on, be given over. That's what Romans 1 teaches us. Because of their evil, they're given you know, over to their sin. So if you're hearing this message and you're struggling with sin, be fearful, brothers. Be fearful. If you're someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, I would advise you, question your reality. Because all of us want to see justice done in this world. But it is interesting that when it comes to ourselves, a lot of times we want to be shown mercy or we want to be forgiven and we never think about the fact that what, it, what does it mean though to break, to break the law, to do, which is basically to do harm to another. And when we have justice, is basically what we have is restitution. And that's what God is bringing about. So why hell? Because God needs restitution for the breaking of his law. God made this world good. His intention was for it to be good. And who ruined it? Man did. Man ruined it. Each and every one of us took part in that, in our own rebellion. Even aside from Adam and Eve, we ourselves know what is good. As a matter of fact, Romans 1, again, teaches us that it's in our conscience. We know it. But yet we do what is contrary to it. Question number three is, why must God condemn sinners? We dealt with that in my last statement, but I want to get into a few scriptures, basically to make the point that because God is just. If God is just, and we know he's a judge, he has to do what is right. He has to punish sin. So let us begin with that statement in itself, that God is just, and looking at Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. That's Genesis 18, chapter, excuse me, Genesis 8, chapter 18, verse 25. You could not possibly do such a thing to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? In context, this is Abraham asking the Lord to spare those that were righteous in the famous story of Sodom and Gomorrah. As you know, that's actually a great example of hell because what happened to that town? It got burned up and everybody died. The whole land actually was plagued by fire. That's actually a great picture of what is to happen here on the earth, right? What is the Lord going to do? He's not only going to be destroying us, He's going to be destroying this world that we, through our hands and through our actions, defile. The next thing that we're going to look at is that God does not pervert justice. If you can turn to Job chapter 8, verse 3. 
That's Job 8, verse 3. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? And the answer, of course, is no. And one of the reasons why the Lord doesn't do it is because it also has to do with His nature. God by nature is good. As a matter of fact, one of the ways that we know that is because when He spoke to Israel, and which is repeated in the New Testament, what did He tell them? He told them, Be holy as I am holy. God by nature is holy. So what He desires is that we be a people as, as Him, holy. The next point is God established His throne for judgment. Let's look at Psalm verse nine. Excuse me, Psalm chapter nine, verses seven and eight. That's Psalm nine, verses seven and eight. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment. And he judges the world with righteousness. He executes judgment on the nations with fairness. So going back again, because that is the nature of God, that's why he must condemn sinners. And he must judge sin. We also know that because he is a just uh, judge, he has to judge all all activities that we've done so the revelation chapter 20 we're going to look at verses 12 to 15 because god will judge the deeds of all that's revelation 20 verses 12 to 15. I also saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown in the lake of fire. So if, as we can see, the book of Revelation is very, very clear that no one, no one is going to be passing. God is going to judge every single thing that we are doing. And so we have to be very cognizant, brothers, of the things that we do every day and seeking the Lord's face every day. Because when do we need mercy? Daily. We need to have mercy daily. The next thing that I want to show is that God is actually going to be judging all kinds of men. And that includes angels as well. And this is a particularly interesting uh, chapter that I found in the book of Isaiah that I don't hear quoted too much from, but I think it's, it, it does a very good job of explaining this. If you can turn to Isaiah 24, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Isaiah 24, 24 
verses 1 through 6. Look, the Lord is stripping the earth bare and making it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. People and priest alike, servant and master, female servant and mistress, buyer and seller, lender and borrower, creditor and debtor, the earth will be stripped completely bare and will be totally plundered, for the Lord has spoken the message. The earth mourns and withers. The Lord wastes, excuse me, the, the world wastes away and withers. The exalted people of the earth waste away. The earth is polluted by its inhabitants, for they have trans transgressed its teachings, overstepped its decrees, and broken the permanent covenant. Therefore, a curse has consumed the earth, and its inhabitants have become guilty. The earth's inhabitants have been burned. Only a few survive. That's a very strong Old Testament passage that actually shows us, once again, what is to, to come and what is actually uh, stated in the New Testament in the picture that we have of a final judgment. I'd like you also to look at uh, verses 21 and 22. On that day, the Lord will punish the armies of the heights in the heights, and the kings of the ground on the ground. They will be gathered together like prisoners in a pit. They will be confined to a dungeon. After many days, they will be punished. If you notice here, when it speaks of the army of the heights in the heights, it's actually speaking of the host of heaven. That's how one of the, uh, that's what some of the other translations speak of. So it's actually speaking of angels. So here, what it's actually saying is that it's. He's judging the angels that are in heaven, and even the and the kings of the earth. Now, I found verse twenty-two to be very, very interesting because if you turn now to Second Peter chapter two, let us look at verses four through ten. That was a Second Peter chapter two. 4 through 10. One second, but I have a little tough time finding second period. <laughs> Reads as follows. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned but cast them into hell, the actual word there is actually the word, uh, it's actually Tartarus. It's not, it's not hell in the Greek. And delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. If he didn't spare the ancient world but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood of the world of the ungodly. And if you reduce the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemn them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly. 
If he rescued Lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral, for if the righteous man lived among them day by day, by his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and who despise authority. If you notice, verse 22 is actually speaking of this. Speaking of, of, of men and angels actually being put in imprisonment. It, it, I like the way it describes it in, in Isaiah, where it describes it as a dungeon. But we see that this very doctrine that we have in the New Testament is also taught in the, uh, in the Old Testament. And it is the reality of what's happening at the moment. Those who have lived their lives and have been unrighteous, they are, as we know in the Old Testament, what was referred to as Sheol, and in the New Testament we know as Hades. They're awaiting the punishment. But the people of God, what does it say? We have a rescue that we receive from God, in particular from Christ. Continuing, uh, brothers, I'd like to go ahead and uh, look at the fourth question, which is, what will hell be like? And this is a specific uh, section that I really want to focus on. Because what happens is that when we think of hell, we tend to think of it as a place of fire and, you know, people being in torment because of their bodies because the reality is that you're not going to be going to hell as a spirit. You're going to be going to hell in a body. The, the doctrine of resurrection is not only about the resurrection of the righteous, it's also about the resurrection of the unrighteous. And it is actually very, very key, brothers, to understanding the gospel. Because the gospel has to do with God sending His Son to stand in the place of sinners so they will not be judged and they will receive glory. But in order to do that, what must God do? He must judge sin. This is why it's so important that because if God is a judge, we see why the concept of hell is actually important because hell is actually God putting forth His judgment. And having an understanding of the gospel is meaning that that is what we are being saved from. And because we receive resurrection of the body, it has to do not merely that we're coming back in the body, but that we're actually receiving a glorified body. That through sanctification, we will receive perfection. But what we do see is that the wicked themselves also come back. And as we look at some of these texts, we'll be able to see that a little bit more clearly. But beginning uh, with the fact that it is a place of torment, I'd like us to look at Revelation chapter 14, verse 11. Revelation 14, verse 11. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image, or anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for endurance from the saints who keep God's commands and their faith in Jesus. So we see here, brothers, that it's a, a place where it's continual torment. When, it speak of, when it's speaking of smoke, it, it's clearly speaking in a way that's, that is a symbolic, in the sense that it, there is going to be a, a form of burning. 
But as we see, for instance, have anybody, has anybody ever seen a lake of fire? No, right? But this is the way God describes the way that the torment is going to be. It's also a place that you're going to feel abandoned. Because we got to remember, the second death has to do with separation from God. So let us look to 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, one nine. Sorry, but I was having difficulty finding this passage too. Second Thessalonians 1 right reads, They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from His glorious might. Continuing, we see that it's a place of utter darkness. If we can go to Matthew chapter 8, verse 12. Eight twelve, but the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this may sound a little strange that it's saying that the sons of the kingdom, but this is actually referring to the children of Israel, the disobedient children of Israel. That, as we know in the New Testament, by the by His holy grace, He's He now is not only calling just the uh, physical seed of Abraham, but He's calling us too, who are not of the physical seed of Abraham. Because by faith, we become children of Abraham. So here it's talking about those that are faithless, and it says that they're thrown where? Into outer darkness. So it's going to be a place, and this is why I say, brothers, that it's very important to understand that it is symbolical, because on the one hand, we have the image of fire, but then it also speaks of darkness. But where there's fire, is there darkness? On this earth? No, right? But this is a way of giving a description of what we will feel. The final uh, point of the nature of hell I want to give is that it's a place of shame and contempt. Mm -hmm. And I'd like uh, to look at two texts to make this a specific point. And that's Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 2. Daniel 12, 2. Many who sleep in the dust on the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. So we see here that when you're in hell, you're not only going to feel the torment, that's going to feel like fire, like sulfur burning you, and that you're going to feel like you're in you know, outer darkness, but you're going to be feeling disgrace and contempt in this, in this, uh, in this place. So if we see it's a, it's a culmination of things that the Lord is, is giving to the people that is that is actually a, a very, 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 very serious thing to take, brothers. 
the last uh, thing that I would like to look at is basically knowing that this is a place that we do not want to be in and that God himself does not desire for us to be in, right? For he has given us the way out. Yet we have the admonition of Jesus himself teaching us to flee from this. If we can go to Mark chapter 9, looking at verses 48, excuse me, 43 to 48. Mark chapter 9, 43 to 48. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So as we see, brothers, this is a, a terrible, terrible, terrible place that... Jesus is warning us. What is he telling us? He's telling us that do whatever we can. If it obviously it's using hyperbole when it's talking about removing your hand, removing your eye, you know, removing your foot. And why is that important to know? Because is the eye bad in and of itself? Is the foot in and of itself bad? Is the hand in and of itself bad? No. What that is, is that's actually a sign of our heart. And so that's the number one thing that we have to be looking at, brothers, is examining the intent of our heart. What are we, what are we following? What are we pursuing? What do we love? We've got to remember that one of the ways that the Bible describes idolatry is what is there in place of God. Because what should be number one in our minds the, the moment that we, wake, that we wake up? Should be the Lord. The Lord should be. Right? And if we love the Lord... Uh, the scriptures themselves says that he who loves God hates evil. So we have to hate evil and we have to love God. Let us now look at Luke 12, 5. And this actually has to do with fearing Jesus. Because even though we see Jesus as being the, uh, the vessel of love that God used to bring about for man, he, he is also the vessel of judgment. Because who has all authority been given to? To Jesus, to the heavenly king. So once again, that was Luke 12.5. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has the authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. So once again, brothers, even though Jesus, when he came, he said he didn't come to condemn the world, right? Why did he condemn not to condemn the world? Because the world is already condemned. If you're a sinner, brother, you are already basically ready for the fires of hell. And so we want to escape this. And why should we fear Jesus? Because Jesus will be the one who will be the very person who gives us salvation and who died for us will be the very person who will also be judged. 
And the last admonition that I want to give to all of you, including those of you who are in the Lord, is that not all of us who claim that we believe in God and that we love God are necessarily of God. So let us look at Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to look at verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many, many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. So this is again a passage, brothers, that tells us that it's not enough. Uh, Paul describes it. I think it's Galatians 4. And the reason why is because it's the church that's supposed to help us to be nourished in these things. We're supposed to be encouraged in these things. But that very mother that you are supposed to be uh, supplied with, that has to be tested too, brothers. Because how many churches are out there? How many organizations are out there to claim to be godly? And yet they're not. Some of them are, are teaching things that are abominations. That are clearly abominations. There are those who deny Christ, who deny His deity, and it's very, very important to that we know these things because these are things that are crucial to our standing with God and to knowing God. Because who are the only people that are going to go to heaven? The people that are truly knowing God. If you know God, it's not. It means that you know His will. It's not enough to just merely confess that you love Him, that you know Him, but that you have to follow Him. So, with that in mind, we have to be very intent on being able to do what is godly, daily, asking the Lord to help us do these things. Because one of the things that we know is that even if we come to Christ, we still are battling the flesh. We have to remember, God is going to judge angels. There are angels out there. We call them demons, right? Evil spirits that are working against us. And working against the kingdom of God. But what is our job, brothers? Our job is to be glorifying God and growing His kingdom. Like I said earlier, we got to be a pillar, pillar in the house of God. We need to set a foundation in the Lord. We need to get well acquainted with His word so that instead we could receive that Lord, the most glorious thing of all, which is to be able to be with the Lord when He returns. And we receive our body in its glorified state, no longer in the sinful, sinful state that we have to be fighting. And by the way, that's that's another way that you will know if you are a believer. If you are fighting your flesh and you fight against your desires because you want to do what is God, brothers, that is a great sign. With that, brothers, I'm going to end this uh, sermon. I hope that it was uh, of help to you and having an understanding how it is important to know that because God is just, because He is a judge, that He's coming. That a day is coming where all things will be put to an end. And he's going to judge every single one of us. And we have to be sure, brothers, that we are properly in Christ. But we are thankful to him because, as I said before, he's given us this. And he's given us teachers, pastors, evangelists, deacons. All these things to be able to allow us, Lord, to, allow, allow us for, uh, to be able to 
properly worship Him and properly seek Him. So let me go ahead and uh, finish up with prayer, and then we'll uh, turn to a glorifying our God in, uh, in worship. Blessed God, we call to your name from heaven asking you to strengthen us, to allow us to be able to see, Father, that you are glorious, and that as you are a most beautiful and most loving Savior, because I don't even think, Lord, that we would know anything as loving as you are, Lord. If we truly understand through the word how patient and long-suffering you are, then, Lord, we would know what true love is. But at the same time, you are a God of wrath. You are angry at sin, and rightfully so, Lord, because you hate evil. Likewise, Lord, let us be able to hate evil in the same way and to be able to regard you in all things. We ask you, Father, that you give us the ability to have eyes that see, that you give us the hands to be able to serve and the feet to go out into the world, Lord, and proclaim the good news, Lord, as our sweet Savior Jesus came and did. We thank you because you have set your King on the throne, that he is in heaven and that he is working all things for good, particularly for those who love God. So now I ask the Father to go with us, to strengthen us, and allow us to take this admonition so that we may live lives that are cautious, that are in awe of you, and that will bear the good fruit that you seek from us. For we ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.